The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Hello. A new year is a time for a fresh start. A time to reflect on priorities, make new choices, and perhaps try to correct the errors of the past. But how far back does your past stretch, and how far would you go to fix your mistakes? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and paperclip owner, and you're entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This evening's discussion covers the 1991 action fantasy sequel Highlander 2 The Quickening, directed by Russell Mulcahy and starring Christoph Lambert, Sean Connery, Virginia Madsen and Michael Ironside. My guest is author Simon Guerrier, and you join us anticipating the fireworks at the Glencoe Coliseum. Hello, Simon. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Happy New Year. This is our uh, New Year's Eve episode. Wow. Um, Welcome to the future. Yeah. So given that... um, this time of year, people are dealing with a lot of leftover turkey. Nice. Um, I see what you've done there. What's your favourite Highlander film? Well, there can be only one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in retrospect, I should have asked you to say that as a reply, <laughs> and I'm ashamed that I didn't think of it. Uh, yes, I think, um, I think the first Highlander film is a lot of fun and well worth watching again and i don't think that's necessarily true of its follow-up which is ironic given your choice of those films to cover today the original highlander released in 1986 was not a success at the time um and it didn't really catch on in the united states but in europe particularly thanks to uh, Christoph Lambert being in the lead role, it was a surprise hit, and particularly then caught on in the US on video, and it became a cult movie. So a few years later, the idea of producing a sequel became much more attractive to the producers, and the result, after many years of struggle, was a film which actually got zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow! Wow! That's an achievement. Yeah, uh, there's there's few films I've seen that have had that that level of rating. I think the previous film we covered in Cinema Limbo, or I covered in Cinema Limbo, Jaws the Revenge managed that as well. And my review of it was very sympathetic, I thought. Well, there's a, there's a... I was thinking about this. What was it that made Highlander a hit on video? And because there's definitely something going on in the sort of mid to late 80s that films, the usual way that a film made its money back is in box office at the cinema. But in the mid to late 80s, you get this thing that there are a number of films that become successful in this sort of secondary phase, this video phase. And that's things like Blade Runner, it's things like Highlander. Um, They're all, as far as I can see, they're all relatively large budget sci-fi or fantasy films. 
So they've got to make their money back to be viable. Um, and there's something about a certain niche audience, I guess. But also I think the thing about video is, my guess is we're talking about video hire rather than people buying the video or, or video hire is a big part of that. And I think part of the thing is it's whether the videos are hired again. I think the, the, the appeal of Highlander is it's a film you don't want to watch once. You want to watch again and again. If you're into it, you'll watch it again and again. And I think that's true of a number of these kind of properties. So that they make their money back because there's a richness to them, because there's value in going back and looking at them again. And Highlander, the, the original, has that in spades. And I think a lot of the, as we'll talk through in a minute, I think a lot of the decisions in the production of Highlander 2 have missed that. Because an awful lot of the choices in Highlander 2 are for your first viewing of the film. And they're not about paying off something if you watch it again or you see more depth or complexity. It's a lot of twists and a lot of surprises and a lot of unexpected turns. But if you know that's where they've gone, there's nothing to reward you watching it again. And I think, I think that's a fundamental problem with this film, given what it is following on from. Um, how aware are you of the Highlander franchise as a whole? Uh, I watched... So I followed the TV series for a bit when it was originally on in the 90s. I've seen Highlander 3, but I, I'm not sure how long ago that was. Um, I listened to some of the Highlander audios uh, when those were being produced by my esteemed colleagues at Big Finish. Uh, I think I might even have read some of the draft scripts of those. Um, I think that's right. I can't remember. It's all so long ago. Yes, I definitely read. I definitely read at least one of them and gave notes on it. Um, so yeah, yeah, relatively. I mean, it's all it's all a long time ago, but but back in the day, yes. Well, um, did you ever see the animated series? Yes, I'm not sure how much of it, but I've definitely seen some of it. I, 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 it does seem like a very weird choice for uh, a whole franchise when the first film is so completely self-contained. Yes. It does yes. it does seem much more like the the subsequent films and the TV series are forcing changes upon the the mythology so that they can continue the story and I think it starts with Highlander 2 and it starts with coming up with the planet Zeist. Yes. Yeah, so so the first film I think one of the appeals of the first film is it establishes this, what's the word, a world of, of people with powers and magic and things that it never really explains. It's all taken as read. And when Ramirez turns up and explains everything to the Highlander, he, um, he doesn't go, this is why it happens. It's just, this is what this is what happens. So that's immediately intriguing. And I can see that part of the appeal is to go back to Highlander and watch it again, looking for the clues that explain how this stuff works and what the mythology is and put it together. And you're right. Once you start explaining it, it all becomes a lot less interesting. 
I think, in my personal view, it's contradictory and also what seems to be a great virtue of the franchise that you can go back in time and tell stories from the past is difficult because it's all got to fit together and be consistent and stuff. But also the stuff that happened in the past can't affect things in the future. It all becomes, you know, it, it, the, one of the great joys in the original Highlander film is it's kind of played ironic and you see the life that he's led and it gives you an insight into who he is in the modern world, which means that your sense of who Conor McLeod is in the 1980s as Brenda is investigating him is completely different from what she thinks he is. Um, and I think that that creates a nice dichotomy, but you can't do that again, really. Um, so yeah, there, there, are, there are limits to what you can do. I think, I think they, they achieve a number of things in the TV series. And clearly Highlander 3 just pretends Highlander 2 didn't happen. Mm. Um, but yes, I think, I actually think, I actually think there are all sorts of things in Highlander 2 that I like. I just, I just don't, don't think they've done, they don't quite work. And it, that's a shame, but, but we can get to that as we go through it. Have you seen either of the, um, the movie spin-offs from the series? Because we're, we're up to five Highlander films now. One of them, the but one, I'm not the sure. The one with Christoph Lambert in it? Yes, I've seen that. All right. Uh, but I watched that, I think I watched that with my friend Scott Andrews, who wrote some of the Big Finish Highlander stuff. And I think we may have watched it quite late at night, possibly with a little glass of something. So I'm not sure how closely I was paying attention. Because but it does. It, I, I when, was, I was, when I was researching this, it did seem familiar. I was, I was hoping that you were going to say you only watched it for work and you didn't take any enjoyment from it at all. <laughs> There has been talk, inevitably, of a remake of the original film, and some of the casting feels, if anything, even less appropriate than the original, where you had a Scotsman played by a Frenchman and an Egyptian Spaniard played by a Scotsman. Uh, they, were yeah. suge- they were suggesting Ryan Reynolds as MacLeod and Tom Cruise as Ramirez. Okay. I think, part again, part of the appeal of the original Highlander film is it's so very different from lots of other things. And there's loads of... You know, on the back of Star Wars, there's loads of things in which people with magic powers have sword fights of one sort or another. Mm. But Highlander feels very different and distinctive. And my worry is that if you remade it, it would just be it just be kind of blur into all the other things that are a bit like it. You know, that's that's the thing. How do you make it's so it's got such a kind of. um, I'm wary of using the term iconic, but, but iconic as in recognisable, distinct, mm. in that sense. That first film definitely has that and feels like it's very separate from all the other sword and fantasy kind of films of the era. It feels perhaps uh, a bit more like, uh, say, Neil Gaiman's Never Were in combining magical and fantastical elements, but in a completely normal urban setting. Yeah, yeah. I you know, I get all the reasons why you'd want to remake it. I just think again, you need to be right from the beginning going, how do we just make make this something special and distinct mm. rather than just add to the sludge of 
generic superhero type fantasy movies. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Those, those aren't my decisions to make, but yes. Well, it's been kicking around for at least 10 years, so I don't think they're in it in too much of a hurry to get it off the ground. Um, now, there are numerous versions of Highlander 2 kicking around. There was the original theatrical release, then a, a re-edited version for release in the UK. Um, then a few years later, there was a, what was called the Renegade Cut, um, which went back and re-edited some of the material and added a completely new scene. And the version that you and I watched is the special edition, which is the Renegade cut, but tweaked again with new CGI effects and a bit of new voiceover just to smooth over some of the cracks. Um, I've seen... I've actually, I've managed to get hold of the original theatrical cut, which apparently is just kicking around on DVD, apparent, mm-hmm. despite being apparently incredibly rare. And if you thought the version that we watched was not too good... Well, hold on to your hat because the theatrical cut is a total mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It um, is, and it is completely it's, incoherent. And it's it's clearly a really troubled production. Um, and there are a number of things that give that away. Um, the the most obvious of which is that it opens with text on the screen. And. I think, I mean, you know, it tells you straight away that it's the year 2024. Um, That's fine. That's just a bit of context. But then you get more and you get more stuff about what's happening, where it's set, what's, you know, what's going on in the world at the time. And that is all just a crisis of confidence from the filmmakers. The more infotext you get at the beginning, the more you know there. There's an executive producer going, what the hell is this? Or a completion bond company in this case. Exactly, exactly. And none of that information is necessary because we get it all from the opening scenes of the film. Yes. But it's a very it's a very sci-fi thing. You can see it in Blade Runner, you can see it in Dune. All films from the same roughly the same period where they make a film, they want it to be bold, they want it to be immersive, they want it to be a credible world realised on screen, and then they cut it together and people go, oh, will anybody understand this? Oh, I'm not sure about this, I'm not... whatever. And immediately they then want uh, text on screen, they want ADR of people explaining what's going on, um, all of that kind of stuff. And, And all of that, actually what that does is what's actually pretty straightforward setting. The more information you give the viewer, the more you suggest it's complicated. So rather than making it more clear what's going on, all of that stuff just gets in the way. And you suddenly go, what, you know, I feel bombarded with information and I don't know how much of it I can take in and what, whatever. So uh, I think, you know, it, you could make it, so, that there would be so much extra clarity if you told the story visually by just having caption 2024, mm. you know, which is only five years after Blade Runner, I think that's a conscious thing. Um, 2024, and open on a vista of that world with an artificial sky. And it tells you everything you need to know for the first bit of the film. Yes, that's true. Um, the, um, the text prologue tells us that there's, there was a 
terrible pollution, the ozone layer was depleted and a shield was constructed to protect the Earth, but there's a resistance group fighting against it. And um, the camera pans a, a pastor, a statue in, in memory of the shield to a huge opera house, and then inside where there is a performance of Wagner's Twilight of the Gods. Yes. And what, what this is all doing is being in sharp contrast to the previous Highlander film. It's not what we expect at all. That has a lot of footage shot in Scotland on the Highlands, and it's this pastoral epic. You know, it's using... In, in his name is the Highlands of Scotland. That is part of the, the scene setting of the film. And then he carries that forward with him into his life, into the present day. This is completely different. It's a dystopia. It's more... Uh, more tangibly sci-fi in its trappings it's dark it's industrial and all of that and you've just got used to that and then we go into the opera house and the opera house is again a contrast it's a, it's a kind of a, a changing of gear as we're going into it mm. um and that is setting up that Connor mcleod is still sort of literary but it's also a connection with the past it's it's him as intelligent it's him as a a connoisseur and it also sets up the 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 shock revealed that he's old Mm. and the hero so again it's it's playing against what we expect to happen uh if, if our frame of reference is that first film there's actually a really a couple of really beautiful shots as the camera starts as a close-up on the soprano and then pulls back and pans almost all the way around the whole auditorium, swings all the way around and then settles back on Connor who is sitting in his box in a in his tuxedo, very old and asleep. Yeah. As he apparently dreams of um depending on which version you're watching, either uh, the planet Zeist or the ancient and mystical past of the earth. Yes, and uh, I mean it's, it, that that opera shot is technically very proficient in an age before drones and in an age before CGI. You know that that's a for real shot. Mm. I notice that there's a caveat in the credits that says that is not how the opera house usually appears, <laughs> and that it's been specifically made to look a bit run down for the purposes of the movie um, and it's it's quite a feat I do kind of wonder what it's for what does it tell us in setting up you know what what does that shot narrate uh, as part of the storytelling um, it does feel a bit showy and it you know are we supposed to gain something from the opera house are we supposed to gain something from the scale of it I I find it because it does rather suggest that lots of people in this dystopian place go to the opera, and I feel it's it's a it's an odd note. Are, are they struggling to retain some of their culture and history as the world goes to pot? Are they? Is this a rare event? Is it not? I find I find all of that just just very unclear. But it's all to set up that Connor's an old man. And as you say, he he's dreaming. So, is the are we supposed to take the dream as true? 
clearly we are, but the idea that he's an old man falling asleep in the opera, it would be just as it just as easy to go he's an unreliable narrator you know we're not sure whether he's mixing up memories and stuff so there's all sorts of choices there where you just go the clarity of the storytelling isn't quite there Mm. and you're trying to do something big and impressive in a sci-fi film that's aiming at a cinema screen and you're trying to surprise us by having connor being old and you know falling asleep and stuff but i think i think the focus is in the wrong place at a storytelling level in um in his in his past or in his memory he recalls uh, a resistance movement being led by Ramirez a Sean Connery character who still has his spanish name yeah. wherever that is um and that there is they need to form resistance to fight the evil general katana and that a new leader needs to show himself and he points to macleod among the crowd and they bond themselves together with a special golden liquid so that their souls are linked. Yes, uh, and that is, um, to use a technical term in, in screenwriting, that's all bollocks. <laughs> um, we get no sense of why, why Ramirez is still called Ramirez, why he singles out MacLeod out of that group of people there's no sense of mcleod being anything special we get no sense of why they have to be bonded what why, why is that an important thing um we don't really get a sense of what they're fighting for you know what are they good guys are they bad guys are they you know all of those things are very unclear um which would be fine in an opening scene if we ever understood them later if there was ever an explanation that but but no. Also, what does it add to what we learned in the first film? It doesn't. It just takes away from it. It makes it less big and special. If but also but also does he? Re- so Connor remembers this stuff as an old man. But he didn't remember it in the first film. There's no sense of that in his relationship with Ramirez the first time. So it's just a weird thing of going. Where has this come from? Yeah. It it it. There's a lot of contractual obligation going on in this film. Um, Christophe Lambert signed up to do it on the condition that Sean Connery returned to play Ramirez. Yeah. Hence, they had to find a way to bring him back from the dead after his head's cut off in the first film halfway through. Um, Connery was paid $3 million for six days' work. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, Lambert tried to walk off the film because he was having such a terrible time. Um I think there is a degree of explanation later in when the the rebellion against Katana fails and the uh, rebels are exiled to either Earth in the present day or Earth in the future. They're told that they once the, um, they they fight each other and there's there's one survivor. That survivor will be able to choose whether to stay on Earth then as. Uh, human and be mortal and live a normal life, or travel back to wherever they wherever they're from, and live free. So, it's suggested that it's only now that MacLeod is becoming aware that this that this happened and that he has this choice to make. It's not clear, as you say, but there's there's a nodding acquaintance with a, an explanation. Yeah, uh, but but it, it then raises the question. So, so that effectively means that. I can't remember his name, but 
the character played by Hugh Corshi in the original film, and also the Kurgan, who's the big villain in the first film, they must therefore be part of this rebellion that Ramirez and MacLeod are part of, because they're immortal too. Is that is that the idea that all the all the immortal, it, or are they something separate? Are they something not th- part of this rebellion? I think in a in a in a draft of the script, the idea was that the Kurgan was like the the weird bird guys. He was a uh, a henchman of Katana who was sent through to kill all the rebels, right? And would then just be able to travel back and uh, and and back to where Katana is. Again, uh, overcomplicated mythology and yeah, and, and just, tight budget and massive re-edits. Oh, it's just it's just dreadful. It's just so. Maybe this is the film they should remake and get it done right this time. Yeah, it's just really clunky, is the thing. And just, just, it's all a lot of unnecessary explanation when really all you need to know is Connor's the hero and there are people with swords who want to fight him. It doesn't have to be any more... Yeah, it's a mess. It's a mess. But anyway. (laughs) So... uh... Connor is woken by the usher and, and leaves the opera and we see shots of the city and the 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 Blade Runner influence is massive. Mm-hmm. The uh, the odd nature of the film is that the producers had been informed that if they want to make a film the place to make a film right now is Argentina. Yeah. Because it's so cheap there. There's so much cheap labor. So they decided to film Highlander 2 in Argentina and based in Buenos Aires. And they got there and they realised there was no infrastructure for filmmaking. Yeah. Everything had to be imported. All the technicians had to be brought over from the UK and the US. There's a massive outdoor set that was constructed there. And it was constructed in a specific place because it needed actual railway tracks running down the middle of it. And while they were there, the other problem is that Argentina was going through hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. So even without spending any money, the budget was dwindling day after day. Supposedly, um, one of the senior crew went to a um, bank to change some money while he was there. And he noticed a clock on the wall. And it was ticking over the seconds. And he realised it wasn't a clock. It was a digital, out, a digital display of the exchange rate. Yeah. And it was changing that quickly. And it's, it's remarkable because the... If you look at the films being made at the same time, the city in this film looks very like the Gotham City of that first Batman film. Mm. And Batman Returns is in production, came out relatively, I think... About six months within, later, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's all of the same thing. And you kind of go, if you didn't know it was made in Argentina, you'd suspect they'd used some of the sets and stuff. So... so the, the the where Argentina really comes into its own in the film is in the when you're outside of the city in the mountains and stuff mm. where it, you know some of that is really impressive and the alien world looks very unlike other alien worlds in cinema of the time and stuff but um yeah yeah that, that and I I gather not only were there problems with the hyperinflation but also the the British crew had problems being in Argentina because the legacy of the Falkland War yeah, and that's, that's all, of, all of this kind of stuff. You just go, yeah, just... But also, you're making a big-budget film with a whole lot of people who don't know how to make a big-budget film. 
And I think the production design on this is amazing. There's some really good work. Production designer is Roger Hall, whose previous credits are Chariots of Fire. Uh, and he did episodes of The Goodies and Upstairs Downstairs. <laughs> and he's done an amazing job on this. I, th- I think it's, it's got a really... Um, you know, bearing in mind it's all in camera, there's very little visual effects in, in the way that we'd understand them now in terms of CG and stuff. It it really holds together as a... Um, uh, what's the word? It really holds together as a... Uh, uh, a complete, a complete yeah, world. Exactly, exactly. But, yeah, clearly not easy. And And what you need on a film of this scale is people knowing what they're doing. And... Yeah, the nightmare, the nightmare of turning up on set and people not knowing how to make it. You know, just... I, I've, had that, I've had that experience on a short. Um, oh. And I've had that experience in... I need to be careful what I say. Uh, I've had that experience on a commercial project I worked on where the people who turned up had claimed to be able to do things that they clearly couldn't. And that was a nightmare for a day or two days. Imagine being on a project for months and knowing as you turn up for the first day, oh, they don't know what they're doing. It's going to look terrible. Hmm. Um, you know, oh, yes, just a nightmare, a nightmare. Um, one example is, well, two examples that I liked on the DVD extras is that uh, the wardrobe department had one safety pin and it, it was guarded like it was uh, the Star of India. Um, and another is that there were so much time and effort went into producing the images for the, sh- the shield effect, the, you know, this, this ravaged sky. And the original cut, it's red, even though all the sets are lit for blue. And after months of work, they produced seven feet of usable film. So they had to run this loop of seven feet of footage over and over again. It's, it's, yeah, just, well, anyway, anyway, just, just. There's a lot of throwing good money after bad on this, I think. Yeah, 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 I think so, I think so. Um, but uh, the world is, the world is miserable. Um, there's violence in the streets, you know, the world seems to be controlled by the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation, and even McLeod is nearly mugged in the street until people recognize who he is and then just leave him alone which which is weird because it makes him a celebrity and the implication is they leave him alone because he's a bit reckless and you know he's the guy who does the sword fights is the kind of implication not oh he's the guy that put the shield on the world that makes life miserable where it's it's just it's just an odd well, my understand. My my thinking was, well, they're going to leave him alone because they know he's connected with the Shield Corporation, and they're the ones with the power. Okay. Yes. Yes. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so they might, they hate his guts, but he's got connections. Um, meanwhile, there's a break in, and as some ninjas um, ride a death slide down a, a big uh, uh, water channel and zipline into the water. They infiltrate a, uh, a, a science facility, and one of them removes her helmet to reveal its uh, <laughs> '80s sci-fi Jonah Virginia Madsen, who also yes. does the narration at the start of Dune. Uh, 
Yes. And um, I think that action sequence of them breaking in looks great. I think, I think that, that feels... It feels like it's difficult to get into the base. It feels like they are... You know, there's a lot of guards around, there's a lot of guns around, and they sneak in, and it all seems quite competent, and there's a, a bit with a helicopter and all of that. I think that's all quite impressive action movie stuff. Um, what a shame that that's the last time Virginia Madison really does anything other than watch what Connor does. Yes. That's her role for the rest of the film. She's the poorly written Doctor Who companion. She's the one who says, oh, what is it, Connor? And he can well, then explain yeah. things to. I, I, I dare you to, to find a Doctor Who companion written that badly. Uh, Dodo. That, that, oh, do, do, Dodo, <laughs> at least, Dodo at least affects change within stories. Um, yes, I suppose so. But it's, it's, it's the stereotype of the companion. Yeah, yeah. It's just she just has nothing to do, and they and and it's the it's the awful cliche that they've set her up as a terrorist to make her interesting and tough and dynamic and whatever, and then they do nothing with her. Um, there's a nice overhead shot in that sequence where they they run across a catwalk and there's a uh, a match shot of all this machinery and that reminded me of Forbidden Planet, and um, as they analyze the the computer readouts there they discover that the external atmosphere above the shield is actually now safe that the ozone layer appears to have repaired itself over the intervening decades yes and and so the whole thing hinges on a conspiracy that actually things are fine and it's corporations that are telling you it's bad i mean i i feel that reads differently now that feels like a sort of climate change denial plot. Um, mm. Yeah. But nothing's really made of it. You, you don't really get a sense of what people on the street believe or, you know, nobody tries to stop Connor from going up to the roof and checking for himself. There's no, there's no you know, there's no dynamic tension in any of that. Um, we're told later on that the Shield Corporation makes a lot of money out of the Shields. Um, and so it's not in their interest to, to turn it off. But all of that is just, again, exactly the same as with Virginia Madison's character. You just go, you haven't, you haven't really used this. There's, yes, there's, there's a lot of elements that are interesting, but they don't use. Yeah. They don't develop. Yeah. Katana, meanwhile, is watching McLeod on his space-time visualiser. Yep. And realizes that McLeod has yet to make his choice of whether or not to stay in the future or go back to the ancient civilization. So he sends some um, weird bird thugs through time to kill him. Yes. And at this point, Katana starts becoming very quippy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's he's just generic villain. There's no sense of why he's doing any of this. There's no sense of he's just cruel and nasty whereas again in the first highlight of film you you totally got why the kurgan was like he was uh because it's him it's 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 them or him basically yeah you know there can only be one and if he doesn't kill the other immortals they will kill him um and so he picks on them as he can so he picks on connor when he's new you know, and a bit early. Yes. Um, 
Which, and the suggestion is he's kind of breaking a rule there because he's attacking him before he knows he's immortal and stuff. You know, all of that kind of stuff. Whereas this is just, you know, yes, you've given him quips. They're not very funny. And, and there's no... There's no inner thought to it. There's no psychology behind it. There's no any of that, which is a shame. The the bird people, I thought they were porcupine people because um, they've got these kind of spiky things. But they've got sort of beaky masks. Yeah, 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 yeah. But So, yeah, I... I mean, I don't know what's going on there. Maybe they're badgers. I mean, it's... <laughs> but, but again, there's no sense of what they are what where does this why does that again it raises a whole lot of questions are, are they from a world where there are lots of creatures that aren't human why why uh why haven't those people been seen before does that mean kurgan is not a human you know all of those sorts of things i just find bizarre yeah um oh you you, you then get uh, uh connor going to the bar where he puts on a bit of queen on the jukebox which is obviously a callback to the first film, but seems an odd choice for him. It does suggest that when that song played in the first film, he could hear it, which is an odd kind of thought. Well, Um, in in Jaws the Revenge, there's a moment where one character actually sings the Jaws theme. Oh, that also happens in Octopussy. Uh, uh, VJ (laughs) plays the James Bond theme to to alert Roger Moore. Yes, that, 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 that's a, uh, an example of diegetic sound, which I just think is odd. It's also not the right cue for Connor. I, I, is that really the tune he'd listen to? Is that, you know... It ought to um, be who wants to live forever, really. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what the rights issue was. Um, I, but he... So he goes to this bar, and then things kick off in the bar. And while the barman is distracted, Connor nicks a drink which just seems so again such an odd thing to do um i get i i read that differently that he and the barman are good friends and connor is just allowed to help himself yeah okay okay maybe maybe i just yeah it's odd it's odd um should have been clearer and, yeah and then and then virginia madsen comes to see him and they have this kind of weird conversation and then she gets in his car with him and again i was just like what 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 why why has she done that why why is this happening why 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 has she gone to see him how long after she was in the shield organization has this happened is it just down the road or are we talking is it the same night is it all of that kind of sense of the space in which this is happening um and then the and then the the porcupine birds turn up. Well, there's there's already been a bit where he's harangued in the in the bar by a drunken woman who says, "My life's shit and it's your fault." Yeah, yeah. But she she actually swings a bottle and cuts his hand. That's and right. He, and he sees that his cut heals rapidly, so he realizes something's happening that his his immortality is in some way manifesting itself again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um... Yeah, I. It also it also again plays to that thing of him as a celebrity that people know who he is and what he's done, which I I just again I just feel it just sits very oddly, um, because surely if they all know who he is, then they'd have asked questions about his past and where he comes from and 
you know, I, maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but I, I do feel it. I can't. Too, I, I can't remember how well that's established in, in the first film of, how much of a life he had, um, how much of a background he'd created for himself in well, the present day. Well, the whole point of the first thing is that he keeps a low profile. And when Brenda, the, when Brenda starts investigating his life, she discovers it doesn't make sense. And that there's a whole lot of things that, that where does his money come from? And who, who is this guy? And how has he got, you know, the, the lovely apartment that he's got and stuff. And that's what gets her onto him because she knows things don't add up. So, you know, they've just ignored that. Or maybe Brenda helped him with his cover story. Mm. Or well, it should explain why he's going by his original name now and not the false name he was using in the first film. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wasn't he using the same trick as um, the Jackal does, which is finding records of children who died in infancy and pretending to be them? You may be right. Yeah, yeah. I can't. I can't remember to be honest. But yes, that does seem. It's a good trick. It's not allowed anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um. But the um, the porcupine bird people um, arrive and uh, there's a big fight as they fly around on their hoverboards. Yeah, Virginia Madsen hides in a bin. Quite right. Um, um, and it ends up with... I, th- I, a, the fight. I, thought, I, th- I thought the fight is visually great. And actually the hoverboard stuff, the explosions and stuff, is all very well realised um, and quite exciting and stuff. It's, you know, it's... They don't just bump into a sheet of glass. They bump into a sheet of glass that shatters in slow motion and then there's an explosion as well. And, mm. and, and somebody has to drive through the explosion and whatever. So it's all, it's all ridiculously over the top. But I thought very well done for that. It's, it's very good at trying to be what it wants to... It's very good at achieving what it wants to Yeah. in this bit. So you can... We're starting to see the strength of the film was when it does when it's trying to do action, it works well. That's yeah. that's playing to the, the the strength of the makers. When it's trying to do the story, um, or create the new mythology, it disintegrates faster than you can put it together. And there's a there's an odd one of the porcupine birds is beheaded by accident. Yes, his neck is run over by a train. Yeah, yeah. And and if Connor had engineered him into that position that would be one thing i also it is that kind of thing of going does he get the power from somebody he hasn't killed is if he's just in the vicinity and somebody has their head cut off does that mean he gets the power as well that's that's because that's what rejuvenates him yes um and surely because there's two of them maybe the thing is that he doesn't get the power the first time he gets it when the second one dies which he when he's done it maybe that would be a a thing because otherwise what happens if any of the other immortals are around why doesn't second porcupine Birdman take some of the power from his dead friend if it's just if it's just there to be absorbed by whoever happens to be about it would have made for quite a a a compelling action scene because because mcleod is old and relatively frail of having him trying to fight uh, the you know, these flying people based not on his physical strength and endurance, but just his wits and his creativity. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's that again. 
So for all it's very expensive, it, again, it's just the storytelling aspect of it is mm. not quite there. But he um, he he absorbs the the quickening energy, and every everything explodes. There are, you know, the entire city erupts with fireworks, and he walks out of uh, a pillar of fire, and now he's young again, and his and his voice is better because his voice in the first part of the film sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's trying to do an old man. It sounds like me wheeze. doing an old man voice. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. And the the, yeah. the other thug has also mechanical wings now. Yes, and and the, you know they have a flying, flying battle on a skate. You know, it's it's very Back to the Future too. I thought you know it is very skateboard. much. So. But it's um, it's much more energetic and dynamic. They've figured out how to make it more more kinetic, more violent, and it's still just dangling people on strings. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I th- I thought that worked well. I I also thought um, you know blowing up the police car and the bit where the guy asks Porcupine Birdman for a light and he sets him on fire are all pretty, you know. I, I I thought again that that is all kind of visual and visceral and and exciting. Um, it's just, uh, but why does he call Ramirez his name it, again? Just what? Why have you done that? What 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 do you gain from that? He's remembering, I think, that Ramirez promised that uh, you know if you ever need me, call uh, because their bond is more deeper than death or something. Yeah, but and then he's completely surprised when Ramirez turns up. So it is just what what the hell is this? Um, <laughs> and then obviously Ramirez just turns up in Glencoe. Now I was confused about that, but until I read, that's where he dies in the first film. That's yeah, that's what I assumed. Um, uh, I would, I I didn't check the history of Glencoe to see. Uh, whether where what it was like in whenever it is fifteen thirty six or whenever it is that the first Highlander takes place, I suspect there was some sort of community there at the time. Um, the the again the thing on him appearing in the Shakespearean stage is odd because the audience clearly find him really funny and they applaud and laugh at his jokes. It, it's just odd. It's not actually a funny scene. It's all played as if it's jokes, and there aren't actually any jokes in it. It's just odd. Well, I firstly thought it was odd that he arrives in the middle of a Shakespeare play and it's not Macbeth. Yeah. Um, instead, it's Hamlet, and that the other actor is trying to continue on with the um, speech to Yorick's skull as Ramirez interrupts, until eventually the actor loses his temper, pulls into one side and says, What's your fucking game, dickhead? Yeah, which, yeah. Which was a nice of just twist, I thought. Yeah, I. Yes, it's it's um, I don't know, I don't know. I I feel that's um, for all it's it's where he supposedly died. I do feel that that's the joke is more about the fact that it's Sean Connery. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, uh, uh, and it's about it, it's about Sh- Sean Connery, not about Ramirez. I think is the is the issue there. Um, he then goes outside and and he's almost run over. Uh, so much for the horse and cart, says Sir Sean. Um, and then we cut back to Connor and um, 
Louise. Yeah, Louise. And he tells her, I'm Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod and I cannot die, which is not true because he's just had two people who almost killed him. Yeah. Um, and then they, uh, then they fuck in the street for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't... It's just odd. It's just... Would you, would you not go home? Would you not... You've only just met and he's weird and has just been attacked by these two people and... Um, and it doesn't seem to last very long either. It's, it's, I, I wonder if, you know, talk about the quickening. Maybe that's... Uh... <laughs> oh, we should be on spitting image. <laughs> um, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't take it to mean that they were having sex. I thought it, they were just being, just having a very you know, passionate hug. Right, um, right. <laughs> but I suppose so. While in um, Scotland, Ramirez walks past a shop selling TVs and is amazed to see his image in the screen very much like the Mr. Bean sketch from, I think, the same year. <sighs> yeah. It's, um... Yeah, I, clearly, they are trying to make what Sean gets to do fun. But... It's all... It, as you say, it's all a bit... I've seen this before. Um, um, and he goes to get a suit. And they give him a glass of whiskey and a... A big cigar. Cigar and... Yeah, and... um and a limo to the airport. Yeah, yeah. And then, then he's on the plane. And you've got him sort of looking out of the window. And you have this weird thing where, actually, if I, if I was going to be in charge of it, what, what Sean should be doing is loving every minute of being on a plane. And as he's looking out the window, he should be roaring with laughter at how ridiculous it is. Rather than being a bit nervous. And you then have, they, they have two scenes with the woman in the seat next to him. The first one, she is pissed. And he's kind of amused by that. And then in the next scene, it's the same woman. She's sober and he's chatting her up, telling her about Cleopatra and Helen of Troy having dark hair. And therefore, and he whispers something dirty in her ear. And you just go, it's just weird. What did... did have they been on the flight for hours and hours and she's sobered up or has he talked around or surely the drinking bit would be let I don't know I don't know it's just odd just odd and, and, all for, and, the, and they have that video that he's watching of the plane crashing and you go that's that's a joke but completely out of keeping with the rest of the film yeah it struck me as a very like Paul Verhoeven Robocop type joke Exactly, yeah, yeah, or Team America, or, or some, something of that sort of stuff. It's really brash, and it, you wonder at what stage in the production process somebody went, that's what he should be watching. Yeah. Um, and it's odd, because that, you, could, you could just remove that, or, or change the video to something else, because it's an insert. And it, it seems like an odd element to deliberately keep. Yeah, yeah, it, I was, it, it, of all the bits in the film, that stuff on the plane... Really got me thinking. What what would you do to make that work? And I think so. I said he should really enjoy going on a plane because mm. that would really sell his character as an adventurer, and he's brave, and he finds being in the future fun, and he lands on his feet in the future. Um, two that the woman next to him is nervous, and she's a nervous flyer and is drinking too much, and he reassures her, and chats to her and talks what nonsense and puts her at her ease 
And that would tell you that he's a hero, he's charming, and he's brave, and all of that. And you get a real sense of who Ramirez is much more than this just weird being a passenger in strange comedy. Yeah. Um, you know, and if he reassures her, and then she says, oh, I feel a lot better, and then he moves into chatting her up, you'd get a sense of him as the Lothario as well. But the sense in the first film is that's not who he is. You know, he's, he's much more into... He talks about the loves of his life much more like... A, a bit like Connor, he's had wives rather than a string of girlfriends. And mm. I don't know. I don't, all, all of that, again, you just go, yeah, the writing could just be better here. The, um, the exterior shots of the uh, aircraft were for the, the special cut that we watched were completely CGI. The shield sky and the plane were completely CGI and it's I think it's a very good CGI plane. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a small thing, but <laughs> a mere yeah, 15 years after the rest of the film was made. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Um, I think it's all fine. You know, it's it's part of the problem is because it's a plane in front of a huge, world-spanning grid. It's not real, so it's it's you know that kind of thing is always difficult to judge the reality of it. There's no proper sense of scale either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the issue later, uh, towards the end of the film, is where they actually are able to um, get above the shield. And we see that the shield is below the level of mountain peaks. So that plane can't have been flying that high. It's a, yeah, there's a, a, an odd inconsistency there. Um, unless the mountain peaks, are, unless we're in the Himalayas or something but even then but they just... drove there <laughs> yeah oh, anyway yes i mean it's i mean also we don't know where ramirez is flying to because the film is vague over where it's supposed to be set and yeah. actually when i say vague it just never says anything at all yeah 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 it's probably luton <laughs> meanwhile katana decides that you know if you you, you don't send a porcupine to do a man's job. So he travels to uh, uh, Luton himself and machetes through the ground and crashes into a, a subway train. Which which implies that this is New York, which is where yes. Connor was at the end of the last film. Yes, and that you're right, that does make a lot of sense. But he also says, well, this doesn't look like Kansas. Because he's been using his space-time visualiser to catch up on 20th century popular culture. Yeah, he's, he's also about to get in a cab. Um, he, he, yeah, he makes a number of references as well that suggests he's done his homework. Um, or it's just bad writing. It, yeah. you know, which of those do you think it is? <laughs> um, um, and, yeah, because he says... He, he makes that comment about the guy who, who's always wanted to drive a train as well, you know. How does he know what a train is? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you've got the bit with the pram running through the train, which I think is, uh, you know, the moment you see a pram running away on its own in a film, that's a reference to the Odessa steps in Battleship Potemkin. But more pertinently, it's a reference to that scene being done in, in the, the Untouchables. Yeah. Um, and clearly, this is a film company that's very aware of Connery having won an Oscar for... Uh, 
for the untouchables. Um, so yeah, so I think that's a that's a a little reference to that. There's, as uh, Katana takes control of the train and takes it on a joyride around the tracks in a scene that adds nothing to the story. Um, but as the the passengers are uh, propelled to the back of the train by the acceleration, it's very clear that they've actually built a vertical train set and are dropping people down through it. It's amazing, isn't it? It's uh, you know in the days before CG became how all of these films were constructed it is amazing to see them do it in camera um yeah yeah and, and again again that should be something to celebrate but as you say there's no reason for it it it, it just seems a very you know if you were if you were in charge of the finance on this movie you'd be going do, do we need this why, why are we doing this no you cut this entire scene katana you know lands in the street and climbs out of the crater and then goes off and hails a cab yeah, yeah. And that entire sequence is gone, cuts the running time as well, um, save a lot of money. Yeah, and, and actually, you don't need to have him hail a cab. The cab can pull up seeing him, and the driver says, where do you want to go? And he goes, oh, well, uh, how, uh, how helpful you are, or whatever, and, and gets in. Because that makes the emphasis on him not knowing it all already, and, yeah. and, and how to behave. Um, yeah, you then... You then we then go back to the shell the shield company rather not the shell company <laughs> um and we get some um background on the shield and that it was set up in 1999 even though that was what we were told at the beginning of the film with the statue and everything else so it's just it's just we already know this that i think the I think the most striking thing about the flashback, which I didn't... I was like, is that a flashback? Because he looks exactly the same. Because he's young. Yeah. Is is this a flashback? Okay, right, yeah, right. It is a flashback. We're going back to when the shield was created. Um, I thought his linen suit with those enormous trousers um, is an amazing look for Connor and really distracting. (laughs) Um, He looks like the man from Del Monte. Yeah, it's just such an odd... And I wondered if that was particular Argentine fashion at the time or, or because it's supposed to be contemporary or relatively contemporary. Yeah. Um, but it just doesn't seem him. It seems a very odd... It, 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 you know, if you think about the first film, if you think about the what's going on here, it, yeah, it just... That really stood out, I thought. It could be Christophe Lambert's own clothes. Possibly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um... And also that scene really reminded me of the Manhattan Project, where they're in the bunker and they've got the goggles on looking through the little slit. It's really reminiscent of particularly the film Fat Man and Little Boy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where yeah, they yeah, first but... test the nuclear bomb. Yeah, yeah. Um, and other things I noticed, I, I mentioned before that Virginia Madison has nothing to do but follow after Connor. There's very few women, and this is really noticeable in in these scenes the scientific fraternity is all men yeah um and uh, you know maybe that's a conscious choice but i just i just thought but if that's odd yeah if if this is the future and it's a a world where we're having female terrorist leaders there's no reason for there's no reason why connor's old colleague at the shield corporation alan Neyman. 
he could have been a female character and yeah my suspicion that would have been perfectly with, reasonable my suspicion with alan in terms of what he looks like is i'm guessing they've tried to make him look a little like einstein oh yes well they um, could have had a look like marie curie instead yeah 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 um but as you say yeah all the all the kind of visual cues are to the radiation and atomic bomb and mm. stuff um and then you have this young executive come in uh, and it, we're about halfway through the film at this point that we meet the sort of contemporary villain. And he he's supposed to be a kind of equal in in the 2024 world to Michael Ironside, isn't he? He's like a villain here yes. and a villain from somewhere else. Um, and he's just really boring. You know, he's just... A, he's a bit of a cliche as a... He's a, he's a nasty corporate executive and he doesn't, have, he, he, he doesn't have any shade to his character other than oh he wants to be in charge and control things yeah yeah and then Alan tells them that they need to go above the shield and he gives coordinates uh, latitude coordinates uh, but not the longitude ones which we'll need later but also doesn't say whether the, the coordinates are east, west south or north which means that even when they do get the coordinates, it could be one of four places above the world, and presumably, if they get that wrong, they die. Um, but anyway, moving on. Um, well, uh, Blake, the corporate villain, is played by John C. McGinley, who yep. we'd recognise from Scrubs, of course. And if you notice that his voice sounds odd in the film... He has been dubbed in a few places, I think, just as normal ADR, but he deliberately deepened his voice because he wants to play the character like Orson Welles. Okay. He, do- he doesn't actually do that, though, does he? His, um, his voice is a little deeper than usual, but it's... Yeah, yeah. There's, there's not hmm. a lot of Orson Welles in that Not really, no. Um, Michael Ironside, incidentally, he... I mean, everyone seems to have taken this role for reasons that had nothing to do with the story. Um, yeah. Sean Connery was in it because Christophe Lambert wanted to be wanted him to be in it. Virginia Madsen signed up to do it because she wants to work with Sean Connery and wants to visit Argentina. Michael Ironside signed up to do it because he'd never played an evil barbarian warlord before and thought it sounded like fun. And that's and that's why he's so over the top is because he thought this film's terrible. I'm going to be the most memorable person in this film. So that's why he's yeah, hamming yeah. it up all the way through for fun. Yeah, I I'm just trying to think. In terms of playing it like Orson Welles, is the idea that you play it as Harry Lyme from The Third Man? Is that is that where they're going with it? I, I just don't see any of that in the character or the performance. It's just how odd. Um, yeah, yeah. I, that may have been his intention, but I don't see much evidence of it. There, there is, I think, some slight homages to Wells. I think the uh, some of the interiors, particularly in um, Connor's apartment, are sort of these very high ceilings and big statues. It re- reminds me of Xanadu. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And even in the, the the opening shot of the film, where we pan into the the neon light, but uh, the neon sign over the opera, it's like the the pan into the neon sign in Citizen Kane, where we and just the, the, just the very I, just the very idea of him not paying attention to the opera that he sat through. Yes, That's, you know, a classic scene for scripture. Yeah, I, I meant more specifically in terms of, um, uh, it's Blake, isn't it? Uh, uh, yes, his ca- his character and Orson Welles. But but yeah, yeah, maybe maybe. Um, 
there is a certain there is a certain resonance in other areas. That might be why he thought ah, what led him to that decision, even if it doesn't really pay off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if Citizen Kane and that sort of stuff was an influence on the cinematography and on the production design. In an, interview, in an interview on the DVD, Phil Mayhew specifically refers to Greg Toland. Oh, okay, okay, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, so Katana's taking a taxi, and he says, ah, it's like a coffin. Because <laughs> he loves death. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the taxi, a coffin that, the, that he's in. The, it's just odd, you know, just... Uh, one of, yeah, the original, the ta- one of the original ideas for his costume is that he'd wear a coat of black feathers. But they rejected that because they thought that was a bit much. Yes, yes. It would make him look... Like a bird man. Yeah, like a penguin or something. <laughs> um, um, Speaking of Batman Returns. Yeah, yeah. And, and then he punches he smashes the windows up the t- out of the, the, the cab for no reason. He might have been offended the- that the driver thought he might have been in the music business. Yes, that is again just. It's not actually funny. It's said as a joke, but it's not actually funny. No. And he attacks the the cab and gets the sword out and stuff. And the cab driver, to begin with, is kind of like, "Well, that means you can't date my sister." Um, and then takes it more seriously. It is really odd that. Um, again, the tone of it is is just very odd. Um, McLeod visits his wife's grave. And we have another flashback, and this was one that was left out of the original theatrical cut, but is inserted in all the others, which is a cameo by, I've forgotten the actress's name, who plays Brenda in the first film. So is it the same actress? It actually is the same actress, under under Just... makeup and blindfolded. Yeah, yeah, so you can't tell it's her. No. It's, it's amazing, an amazing thing to do. Um, and that is in New York in 1999, and I thought... I think I think that's a really um, bearing in mind there are so few speaking women in this film. I think they really badly serve her yeah. for that. It would have been if you're going to actually have the actual actress, at least show her telling Connor the first time she gets ill, and go, kind of going, "I think there might be a problem." We're you know they know there's something going on and people are getting sick. And then she says, I think I'm sick. And then you can cut to hair in the hospital. But that pan through the hospital with all the beds occupied is extraordinary. Yeah. That's an amazing, amazing moment. Um, and really powerful. And really sells the idea that he had no choice but to put up the shield. Um, I would have put, you know, if you're going to have her in it, A, have her recognisable in it, at least for a bit, and actually, he could be telling her, well, one theory is to put up a shield, but they can't, they can't work out how to do it. And also, it's a horrible idea. We have to have, I'm a Highlander. We have to have nature in the sky or mm. something. And so that, that at least her involvement changes the plot and, and has an effect, an impact. But otherwise, yeah, we already know she's dead. So it's visually very affecting, but you kind of go... So that that sequence would need to be earlier in the film, really, because it, that it functions as sort of explaining where the shield came from and how Connor has reached the point in his life that he's at now, where he's kind of uh, sort of 
emotionally divorced from the world and doesn't care anymore. Yeah, yeah. Also, would it make more sense if the fact that he worked on developing the shield was a surprise? Um, so Virginia Madsen thinks because he used to be on the news saying that they shouldn't have a shield, she thinks that's why she seeks him out because she thinks he might be on their side in dismantling it. And then she discovers, having got together with him, that actually he's the one that worked out the mechanics of doing it. You know, do, do you see what I mean? It, yeah. It, all of that. All of that means that there are character beats and and a bit of revelation in the story, rather than it all being a bit perfunctory. Because when when this, as I say, when this happens, it doesn't tell us anything that we don't already know. Um, and that's that. I think we were talking at the beginning of the conversation about the format of Highlander as a franchise, there is a problem with the flashbacks if they only tell you stuff that you know or can... Um, you could deduce from existing from, evidence. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a bit like prequels. That, that prequels... Uh, hey, you're R2-D2. Well, my name's Ben Kenobi. You kind of go, yeah, yeah, we got that you had met. Um, that, that, that kind of stuff. It has to show you something that you didn't know. Um, um, but McLeod visiting uh, Brenda's grave does give him the opportunity to meet Katana for the first time because there is a rule that there is no fighting on holy ground. Yes. Not, not explain where that rule comes from, given that it's imposed by their exile or something. Also, Katana, Michael Anside, so clearly one to stick to rules oh yeah just it's just odd um I mean, you know if you're going to do that why not if, you, if, you, if you're going to refer to that rule from the first film which is you know has a purpose in the first film have him come in and have connor say we can't fight on holy ground and him going i don't i don't follow the rules and then it's a shock thing that he's even breaking that sacred or or have it's not that we don't fight on holy ground. We can't fight on holy ground. There is some kind of consequence. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, have you seen uh, "Let the Right One In"? Yes. The scene where um, young Ellie demonstrates why vampires can't enter a home without being invited, and she just walks into someone's house and she starts bleeding profusely out of all her pores. Yeah, yeah. So there's yeah, yeah. right. So this is why. So there needs to be, so well, why is this a rule? It's not just nicety between these people who are all supposed to be killing each other. There has to be a a, a reason. And um, Connor says to him, "See, after all these years, you're still a jerk." Yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> so he so he really remembers him. Yeah, everything and, everything's come back now. Apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we then uh, after this standoff where. Nothing happens. Um, we go back to McLeod's apartment and there's lots of his relics, um, a bit of Queen. Um, again, it's odd because we know all of this stuff. Um, and there's um, someone suddenly drops out of the, the ceiling and it turns out to be someone hanged on the end of a long rope. It's the cab driver, isn't it? Ah, that explains it. I didn't. I didn't recognise him. 
Yeah, so so it's all of the kind of weird, that kind of weird humour about dating his sister ends up in this shock moment. Um, I also think, you know, that, that wandering through that warehouse or whatever it is and there are birds flying through it and stuff, it's very Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. Um, but actually the vibe I was getting is this feels very much like a, it's so stylized that I was thinking until the cab driver drops out of the air that, you know, it's going to be an advert for razor blades or Guinness or something like that. Um, it's very, very sort of 1990 high production values on advert vibe about it all. Well, that's, um, that's very Ridley Scott, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's the new Macintosh. Yeah. And um, Katana attacks him and sneaks up on him, but is undone by the noise of his own extending sword, which is just... <laughs> Rubbish, just rubbish. Um, and they have a big old fight. Um, and that fight's quite good, actually. I, th- I think it's quite, it looks a bit different and it has beats and it goes places. Connor then falls down the lift shaft, which I thought was quite good, and is mangled at the bottom. Um, and all of that stuff of him, like lying there disjointed and then has to snap his bones back together again, would be so much better if Katana came down the stairs with his sword ready to prey on him because he's you know if you had that if, the there, fact if, that he, if there was some if there was some jeopardy that he yeah 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 that he's vulnerable yeah yeah and katana's going to exploit it and he just gets he just pulls himself together just in time and even if he retreats and runs off because he's not ready to fight um but no there's there's no it doesn't go anywhere the the, the fight you know it's just like right well we'll stop now and we'll pick up we'll pick this up again later in the original cut, this fight and the the final sword fight between the two were merged into a single sequence. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um, it makes that more satisfying, I think, as we'll get to in a, a bit later. But uh, Connor goes to his apartment where Louise is asleep and he wakes her and they talk about his first wife uh, and how he's been lonely for a long time. But then suddenly another swordsman appears and attacks him and it's Ramirez. Yeah. Um, also, also an odd thing about him talking about Heather um, uh, is that he says that his he says that Heather was from fifty. We lived together in fifteen forty two, which is a really odd thing to say about somebody you lived with for decades, as is implied in the film. Yes, that's a really uh, and and I checked Highlander the first Highlander film. The actual caption we see, which is at the beginning, the, the, the sort of earliest point of his, of his life we see, is 1536. So it's six years after that. And so I wonder if they've gone back to the script and gone, when, did, when, when was the bit with Heather? When was that? Mm. Um, and I will come back to that in a moment, because it then comes up to, to something that uh, uh, Ramirez says. But that, again, is a... That's what it was in the previous film rather than going that's what their life was yeah um if he'd said i lived with i lived with her for 30 years or whatever that's that's something that somebody actually says about their relationship but um yeah odd odd in the as i said in the original cut the the planet zeist scenes are explicitly 500 years ago which completely contradicts the idea that the kurgan is a viking is he, is he a viking yeah, and like that, that yeah. Ramirez was from ancient Egypt. Yeah, yeah. 
Whereas in, in this version, it's just, oh, this is eons in Earth's past. We can say, yeah, it doesn't, yeah, it's however long ago for it to work. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So, uh, where are we? Uh, so, Connor and, Con- uh, Connor and Connery have a fight. For, you know. And, oh, and... But which of them is more Connery? Uh, well, it's, it's, um, I was going to say that the sort of bromance between MacLeod and Connery or between Lambert and, and Connery is really fun. There is an odd thing, though, that he sends Virginia Madsen upstairs to be safe. She goes up a few stairs and they, they have this chat and then she kind of comes down. It's not Connor's thought of going, oh, hang on, I've just sent my girlfriend upstairs. Yeah. Let me just tell her it's all all right. Um, that's not his thought. Um, Whilst uh, Blake marches into um, Alan Naaman's office and says, oh, I remember that, uh, com- that typed conversation you were having with MacLeod earlier. Well, it was all printed out in my screen in my office. Yeah, because that's something that happens. Because he was, had, his, had his PC bugged or something like that. Yeah, yeah. He had, yeah, t- but... he had Team Viewer open. <laughs> he also says that, um, that, that there's a, a mechanism on the thing that, that has enough energy to kill all of humanity if the shield is threatened. What, what, why? What, what, what's that? What? what? Yeah, um... <laughs> that's, I mean, why booby trap it? Yeah, it's odd, but but it does mean that the whole of this film made painting in this that the idea that they should turn the shield off, but he, but there are interests who don't want to turn the shield off because they make money out of it. But it does mean that the whole film is about pressing an off button. It's all predicated on switching yeah. a thing. And it, oh, oh, right, okay. Um, Surely, I mean, they should have. If the shield is seen as being so vital for life on Earth, then it, in theory you would have it built so that it can't be switched off. So it's, it, it would then be a matter of how, how, could, how, do we, how do we destroy this indestructible thing? How do we kill this immortal machine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, we, thought, we thought we needed the shield forever, and obviously we, you know, we protect it from anyone trying to attack it and d- potentially destroy the world. So then it would be an issue of Okay, we don't need it, and now it's a threat. How do we, yeah? How do we shut it off? How do we destroy it? Rather than, as you say, yeah, you can just turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Normally, things that are absolutely crucial don't have off switches. Or well, can't... yeah, yeah. Just uh... anyway, anyway. So there, then we have the board meeting, which uh, I loved. Michael Ironside crashing with the word "hi." I thought that was great. <laughs> Um, the bit where he's shot up and then gets up, it's fine. I thought that was quite quite nice, nicely done. Mm. I also thought the bit where he grabs the bloke who shot him and does something to his jaw that we don't really see but sounds pretty horrible is very nicely done. Um, Katana knows how a board meeting works, and you know he knows about cabs. And the Wizard of all, Oz, yeah, and uh, all of that. So, I, so uh, I can imagine that he, like a board meeting's not different from, not they're different from, say, the Knights of the Round Table, or a Council of War. So there's, you can you can draw a line there. It's quite a faint, thin line, 
but that one I think makes the most sense out of all the things that he shouldn't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, th- there's also. Yeah, I how, guess so. How does he know that McLeod is affiliated with the Shield Corporation? Because that he's he's discovered that off screen, and yeah. like in in this version of the story, well, yeah, there is some known public connection between the two, but we don't ever see Katana discovering this. He yeah. just yeah, yeah. he just you know he's been to the library. Um, we then we then cut back to McLeod's flat, where having worked out that they need to find the coordinates. They need to find the longitude to be able to work out where they can go on above the shield for safety. Um, Ramirez breaks the glass on the globe for no reason, which, you know, it's just odd. It's an um, exciting scene transition. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a visual metaphor for breaking the shield. That's, that's what it is. But mm. it's it, uh, just odd. Um, and then he says that he, uh, uh, when, they, when they drive off and they, they face the guards who ask them who they are, um, Ramirez says that he was the metallurgist for Philip II, which is tricky because um, Philip II of Spain ruled from 1556, which is 14 years after Connor lived in Scotland in Glencoe with Heather. So by the time Philip II came to the throne of Spain, um, Ramirez had already had his head cut off. I don't mind that he might not be being honest about what he tells the guards, but he wouldn't know who Philip II was. No, that's true. Yeah, sloppy writing. And 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 clearly, clearly, because he says Philip II, they have looked up. They've they've made the connection to Spain. They've made the connection to that century, but it's just. Yeah, I think they have. I think that it's just oh who is who is a famous you know late middle ages spanish king philip the 2nd well that's something that we've heard of yeah yeah it's just yeah i i just yes uh, all there's quite a lot of evidence that they haven't studied the first film particularly closely no um um also alan alan's been taken to prison but he's been put in max prison which is basically like just escape from new york but smaller yeah, which, yeah, but, which seems um, very harsh for a, a little old man. It does, it does. But also, that it's playing to the idea that there's a kind of police state here, that the executives of the board of the Shield Corporation have. You know, that it it just so happens that the the company that runs the Shield can put people in prison as they wish. Yeah, that's a kind of RoboCop style corporate future. I think corporate dystopia. I think. Yeah, um, I I just wanted to to say that that um, as they go past the guards, having used the fact that he's a metallurgist to Philip the uh, Second, Ramirez says, "Hit it, dude." Yes, I've um, written that down and highlighted it. <laughs> I want I want more films in which Sean Connery calls people dude. Yeah, wouldn't it, wouldn't he have been great as Rufus in the Bill and Ted films? Ah. Oh. I was thinking he should have narrated. He should be the uh, narrator of the Big Lebowski. Oh, oh Connery in a Coen Brothers movie has just uh, warmed my heart. Um, I, I found it that I recently listened to a podcast about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, not the one that I did on League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Right. Um, 
which was a, a film that he uh, chose to make because he'd been offered a number of big budget scripts like The Lord of the Rings, like the Matrix sequels, and he had no idea what was going on in them. And he then went to see them become huge hits. So he thought, right, okay, the next big budget thing I read that I don't really understand, I'll take because this is something that will be a big success. And that was League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and that was his last live-action film. Mm-hmm. You'd think that Highlander 2 would have taught him a lesson on this matter. Well, I'd, uh, yeah, I mean, you wonder who's advising him on all of this sort of stuff as well. But, yeah, I, I, all of that is just a great shame, really. Mm. Um, yeah, he deserved better, you know, that's, that's, that's yeah. the thing. Um, in fact, because and I and I think part of the quandary of this of Highlander two is they're not what their what their their response to him his career having you know he did Highlander one because his career was not exactly stratospheric at the time but the Untouchables was part of a. Um, Renaissance. Transformation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly, that's the word. Um, and Highlander 2, you can see that gives him more clout that they don't make the film until he's happy to go ahead. And so there's delays and they write more comedy and they write more material for him and he gets a huge fee for six days' work or whatever it was. But they're not really respecting him as an actor. They're not really giving him enough to do. I think also, the, the sh- I talked about the shadow of the untouchables in the Odessa Steps. The bit of him and Connor being shot up in the car, that, and him in a bloody shirt and stuff, that is very similar to his death in The Untouchables. Yeah. Um, And he goes down in a hell of bullets. Um, What's amazing is you see them go down in a hell of bullets where they're in pieces and the car has been riddled with bullet holes. Virginia Madsen is in the boot and he's fine. Yeah. How is that? Is that especially reinforced boots? Is it? Um, also, why is she with them? Because she plays no part in what follows. Um, yeah, it's very odd. Very odd. Um, their bodies are taken to the uh, the prison morgue, and after a bit, they just sit up and they're fine. And they yeah, and, and they and they, compa- they they brag to eat. Well, they try and one up each other on over how many bullets they were hit by. As if, as if, as they're being riddled with bullet holes, they counted, which is, you know, funny. Or the pathologist said that as he was studying them. Um, yeah, I think that's fun. I think that's quite fun. Um, it's just a bit of a cliche that the pathologist sees them alive and faints. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a lazy gag, uh, just because we've seen that sort of thing quite a lot. Um, they go and find Alan, who tells them the coordinates of longitude that they need. Um, and then he dies immediately. Yeah, and there's no sense of what has been done to him or... or he's it's just something nasty, something unspecifically nasty. He's had his uh, jaw wiggled around by Katana, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, they're being chased by the, the guards and everything, and they, <laughs> they have to escape through one of those... Um, special ventilation fan chambers that they have in films. Yes, which, and, which and, is designed to come down and crush people. 
presumably it, that's for maintenance or something um that it can come down to your level to be cleaned yeah and um, as, as we were saying about you know, other things that are like this this is indiana jones and the temple of doom yes yes uh, in fact all the way back to the oscar uh the, the oscar the opera sequence at the beginning i think their influence may be the Temple of Doom with the opening of Temple of Doom. Oh, yeah. Which opens the sequel to a big action movie with a musical dance sequence, Busby Barkley style, because it's the last thing you're expecting. Mm. And it's, su- it's such like a what the hell? Um, what is this? Where are we going? Um, and I think that might, might be what the Opera House stuff is trying to do. Um, but yes, yes, you're right. It's very Temple of Doom. It's very... Um, Oh, you know, but the cliches of this kind of stuff have been exposed in things like Galaxy Quest and whatever. Um, and Ramirez uses his space magic to stop the thing somehow by living all of his life in one moment or he, something. He uses the full measure of his life. Yeah. Like, like Iron Fist. Right, yes. Um, that's obviously who I should have thought of. <laughs> um, I've been watching Iron Fist recently. But, but it's not is, very good. There is quite a sense of it's uh, half past four on the Friday of his last day. <laughs> uh, we need to write him out. Um, he leaves before the climax of the story. I feel if you've got, if you're going to have Sean Connery as this quite significant character, you need to have him in at the climax. They even got William Hartland at the climax of the Three Doctors. Yeah, it's it, it's very odd, isn't it? It and and <laughs> and then. He basically says, well, my time's up, I'm off now. And you go, oh, okay. Uh, and they play Amazing, Amazing. Grace on, bag- on bagpipes. Because obviously the ancient Egyptian who lived in Spain and Japan for much of his life and then turned up in the Highlands of Scotland briefly. Um, again, just so odd. Um, well, when he was flying over to um, the future city, the in-flight movie was Wrath of Khan. Yes, very good, very good. Yeah, I wonder if Wrath of Khan being a sequel to a big-budget film is one of their touchstones. I think, I believe, I can't remember quite... I think Wrath of Khan was a big success at the box office, wasn't it? And It, it was. was. The subse- it was the subsequent Star Treks that did very well on video. But I wonder if they had looked at that and considered it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the... Yeah, again, why not play a bit of Queen there? Um, that would be well. The, the the film sort of kept with the the first one because well, the, the first film had the the rock music by Queen. This has the score by Stuart Copeland of the Police. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was apparently very proud of his score for the film and using the Wagnerian style and taking his cue from Twilight of the Gods. Well, um, it's all supposed to be a kind of opera, isn't it? That's, yeah, that's the, so it's all supposed to be a bit operatic. But it also means that there are still bits that sound like the theme from The Equaliser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so so after the cheery, you know, where is before? Where is in the first film Connery's departure was a sad thing that cast a shadow. His he he leaves here with a wink and a smile, and everyone seems quite happy about it. Um, Virginia Madsen doesn't turn to Connery and go, "What the hell just happened?" Um, they then get in a car and run over Michael Ironside where she says outstanding and the joke is that she's going to be horrified but then she's pleased. Um, but Michael Ironside clings to the car and they then have a fight 
which seems to have been copied and pasted from Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, <laughs> on the back of a car where he's hanging on to it underneath. This was the, the sequence that was shot later on. This was shot several years after the film came out. Because um, the success of the Highlander TV series was such that they, the producers had the money to go back and assemble the, the renegade version, uh, which included shooting this completely new sequence. So I think this is probably the one bit of the film that wasn't filmed in Argentina. Wow, okay. Okay, how strange. Um, and, yeah, the shame is that it's very familiar from Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it was done better, mm. and there was more story in that fight as well. And then you've got the weird thing at the end of the fight where they get in the car and Virginia Madison is bothered about her nosebleed. Um, which is just, what, why? What, what, you've just been in a big fight and you're just kind of slightly bothered. Um, and, and as an added scene, there's then the disconnect because Katana goes back to the boardroom, the, the, um, Blake, the businessman, to tell him that he's the guy to beat Connor. And but, you kind of go, well, you just had a fight. with why, why have you come back to the boardroom to say that? What, what, where, how far away is it? Surely the sense is that it's all... Everything's very close together in this film. Yeah, yeah. It's set in um, Liechtenstein. Why, yeah, why not just get on with it? Um, also, he's, he's had two fights with Connor, and one of them he just sort of gave up halfway through and left. And the other one he lost... And yet he yeah, maintains, yeah. oh, no, yeah, I can do it. Third time's the yeah, charm. Yeah. I'll just, I just pop back to tell you that as well. <laughs> yeah, it's very odd. Um, but when, when we get into the mountains with uh, uh, Connor and Louise, it, it looks amazing. I, I, you know, really impressive vistas and stuff. Um, and I, I liked all the stuff about them getting above the shield and having fresh air and stuff. And Louise um, sees the sky for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's all, that's all really nicely done. Um, we're then told by Katana that they vanished for 24 hours so what have they been doing um, is that because they've spent 24 hours outside the shield or is that because it's been 24 hours since they ran him over or and they've lost track of where the car went um, surely if they know that the plan is to turn the shield off, or that's the suspicion, they would check where are places you would go above the shield to check. That surely there's a visual thing in Katana and Connor having a fight on top of the shield and sliding about on it and breaking it and digging their swords into it and you know. Or stuff. try or try not to touch it because um, uh, it, it, you know it could be like a a laser wall or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, it's a great idea that they've just not really used very much. Um, but instead, um, instead he uh, Katana crushes Blake's balls and throws him out of a window for for no great reason, as far as I can see, other than that he's not very nice. Well, just, um, it's just to tidy and, up the characters at this point, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the film is the film is rattling towards its end, and um, it's to put him out of his misery, really, isn't it? Um, McLeod and Louise arrive back at the Shield headquarters, where Katana is waiting, and they have another sword fight. Yeah, um, Connor now has his sword with him. Useful. Where, where, you know, did he pop home to get it? Did he? Did he have it when they went 
when he is riddled with bullets going into the S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation before, uh, or, or going into the prison before, did he have his sword with him? I don't think he did. I don't remember him running around with it. No, I don't think so. But you'd think that he would have to carry, he, he would have the sense of carrying it with him everywhere he goes. Yeah, yeah. So, so either, either it's uh, one that slots up and he can put it in his pocket, or, uh, or he's nipped home to get it. Um, and the thing that's really striking in this edit is how short the final fight is. It's pretty perfunctory. Um, they have a bit of a snarl at each other. They have a few clang, clang, clang. And then Connor grabs Katana's hand and puts it in the light. And that basically means that Katana can't fight two-handed. And Connor cuts his head off. And whereas before with the porcupine birds, there's a bit of hesitation about it. There's Connor doesn't seem to be particularly aiming to behead everyone. This one is purposeful. He says there can be only one, despite the evidence so far, that there's been quite a lot of them. Mm. Um, also, you don't want to say that in the second film of the series. Yeah, there should be only one. Is there? <laughs> uh, and, and then you've got this weird thing where Ramirez said it before he vanished in his pixie dust but it's repeated now that to turn the machine off is going to require them both both connor and virginia madsen so what happens is connor steps into the beam of light and virginia madsen watches him <laughs> she plays no role in it i i i think here that it's an issue with the script and it's something that's not clear when it says them both Maybe he's referring to Connor and Katana. But it, but then why why does he need Katana? Because um, he needs he needs the energy from the the quickening he would get from Katana's death. He needs to sort of funnel uh, that in yeah, some yeah. way. Okay, okay. That's yeah, that's yeah. that's the energy that can turn off the unturnoffable machine. Right. Yes. Yes. I. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. I'd misread that. But yes. It's um, it's. I, I misread that the first time I saw it and it didn't make any sense. But I think that's the way it's supposed to be interpreted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yes, I... I think it's a great... I think it's a great... I think my, my focus is, is that there's literally nothing for Virginia Madsen to do but just watch. And that's all she's done since she's met Connor. Um, and she's hidden in a bin and she's hidden in a boot... And she's hidden upstairs. And then she's watched him walk into a big light. It would have made perhaps more sense if Connor had been on the outside of the S.H.I.E.L.D. industry, but Louise had been on the inside and turned against it. So she's the one with the connections. She's the one who knows Alan. She's the one who helps Connor get to the next step of the story. Yeah, yeah. To to make her an essential part of what happens rather than just uh, a a casual appendage. Yeah, uh, also... Also, on that basis, if he, as an old man, is treated by everybody as if he's crazy, as he tries to come to the company and tell them that the air is breathable and that they can turn the machine off, she doesn't need to, as an insider, she doesn't need to believe him. But if she's just kind to him when everybody else is not, Mm. that creates a connection between them and a link that he might then try to exploit by going back to her. And if then the porcupine bird people attack while he's doing that, you have it's a much more 
connect, it, all the dots kind of connect up a bit more. And then she sees him as this young, dynamic hero and is kind of going, and he's going, oh, you were kind to me when I wasn't. Yeah, that gives them a, that gives him a reason to like her and for us to like her. Oh, it's it's like Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. But but all of those kind of those kind of that that kind of interplay, that, those kind of tensions would be more satisfying, I think. Mm. Um, whereas as it is, they they turn the light off, and there's a big explosion from which he's completely unharmed. Yeah. And they walk away down the riverside. Nobody, oh. nobody, none of the guards try to stop them or, or you know, anything like that. The, th- um, the theatrical cut ends with Connor turning and smiling at Louise. There's a freeze frame and we go straight into the credits. It's, yeah, yeah. it's so abrupt, it's ridiculous. Um, and we get the, the closing song, One Dream, which is such a disappointing not queen. No. Um, well, I mean, there's there's the kiss by the river as they they look up at the night sky, and there's a there's a really nice CGI shot of of the uh, the shields going off all over the world, and the the sky clearing as seen from space. Um, but there were multiple versions of the ending. There was a version where uh, Connor goes back to his home planet, like Poochie. Yeah. Um, one where he uh, persuades uh, Louise to come with him and there's a final shot of them walking on the surface of Zeist. And there's a, yeah. r- there's a rough cut of this on the DVD which cuts between shots of Virginia Madsen on location by Riverside and shots of Christophe Lambert hanging from a Kirby wire in front of a blue screen as they're doing their dialogue back and forth in what looks like different continents. Wow. <laughs> Wow, and then they t- and then they turn into magical will o the wisps and fly off into space, and it does not look good. Well, it's it's all a shame because there's no, the first film was so good at Connor's relationships with both Heather and Brenda. You really believed in those relationships, and they're very different women, and they're very different. What's the word? They're de- very they have very different stories, but they both seem credible and and believable. And this. It's just, yeah, we just bumped into each other and there was a fight and then we started snogging and then I went to his apartment and then we... There's no, there's no kind of sense of... You, don't, you know, he hasn't had a... As he says, I haven't had a wife in 29 years or whatever it was, 19 years. Um, so, so I am looking for a shag. That, that seems to be the <laughs> limit of, of the... And, and it's the first thing he does once he becomes young again. Yeah, yeah. Typical um, man. Well, it just, I mean, you know, there, there it, it happens in James Bond films as well. Like, there's no, uh, in For Your Eyes Only, the sort of running gag is, is that they don't get on and they don't get together. And then there's a point at which they just start snogging and going swimming naked together. And you just kind of go, hang on, did I miss something? Was there a bit where they, yeah, you know, um, which is a shame because when there's a when there's a thawing or there's a there's a you know a chatting up scene that really works, it's really effective. And I, I just it just none of this has been thought through enough. And that's what I feel is the shame. I think to to sum up, I think Highlander Two looks often looks amazing. Some of the production design is extraordinary, even more so when you know that there were problems in production. 
uh, and all of the things that you were saying before about hyperinflation and whatever. But the script is a mess. There's a whole load of things that have been attempted to fix it. But the things that have been attempted to fix it are to put in jokes or ad libs or bits of business. Actually, the problems are more fundamental. They're, why is this happening? What, why are these people related to each other? What do they want? Um, and sadly, it comes down to, well, Michael Ironside is bad. And there's a bad business who doesn't want the off button pressed. Mm. And that's it. That's it. And it all just feels a bit, so what, really? Um, and so there's an awful lot of attempting to cover that. Which, and it's a shame because it should it should just be a lot better. There's, I think as as we've talked, we've found that there are a lot of solutions to the problems that the film had, and there a lot of them are script based. Yeah, and that uh, a really good writer and one sort of vaguely competent podcaster can between them solve <laughs> solve which, them. Which, which of us is which? I'm not with the podcast. <laughs> right. You go you you go and get your own show. Right, um, <laughs> but I mean, the, the, these problems are fixable, and you can r- move the characters around and change elements and move scenes around, seemingly without too much difficulty. In a way that how you can have this story restructured so that it's more satisfying and more coherent and more and has and have greater depth without having to really deep dig down too much. I mean, it would still, you know, still be like a t- fairly tight two-hour sci-fi action movie, but it would just have stuff that makes it feel like it matters. Yeah. In the way that stuff in the first film felt like it mattered, because there was emotional weight behind it. And for all the, the problems that the film had, and for all the, as I said, the stuff that, that does work, the visual aspect to it, which doesn't seem to have been too badly impacted by the production problems. The production problems don't explain the fundamental flaws in the storytelling that that are the biggest problems with the movie. Yeah. It's like that's yeah, there were problems with the script and also problems with the production. And I think the two aren't related. That they had a bad script and then made it badly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um and all the things that you are battling on a day-to-day process of getting the thing made are not dealing with the problems of the script. They're dealing with the firefighting of the production. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just a shame. It's just, it should be better. And there's, there, what, what I think is most interesting about this film and most frustrating about it is every now and again you get a sense of a much better film it could have been that they never quite they never quite deliver on um and i think i think connery and lombard are both very good leads i think virginia madison is is deserves much better than this academy and award I, nominee virginia madison yeah yeah she, she just she, she yeah she just deserves a lot better than this um michael ironside's I think he's fun and he's a very effective baddie, but just a bit of motivation, just a bit of... If the script was better, I think he'd be motivated to give Katana 
more more depth, make him more of an interesting villain. Still won't be, you know, he's the uber evil immortal. But yeah. there's more you can do with that. The Kurgan is just like a, a big evil guy. But the performance and the way the character's written make him interesting, even though yeah, yeah. he's just a bad guy you've got to get rid of. And there's there needs to be that with Katana as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think, I think, yeah, I, I agree with that. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing Highlander three uh, <laughs> because apparently it's much better than this one, and I have absolutely no idea what it's like. So, oh well, excellent. So, are you going to are you going to do that on the podcast? Um, maybe I'll watch it and we'll find out. <laughs> excellent, excellent. All right. Thanks to Simon for making time for this recording. His new audio drama, Wicked Sisters, is part of Doctor Who The Fifth Doctor Adventures and is available from BrigFinish.com, Specialist Retailers and wherever fine audio drama is sold. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast with almost 80 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at Cinema underscore Limbo and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, Happy New Year and Happy New Highlander. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. (laughs) 